0: Don't forget, you can join me every Thursday at 8 Eastern, 7 Central on GetVocal.com. There, I will be doing a live stream with a panel of listeners to talk about this week's case. You can also view on the Crime Line's Facebook page, but to participate, I recommend going to GetVocal, G-E-T-V-O-K-L.com. I'll have the information in the show notes. It's going to be a lot of fun, and if you're interested in being one of the panelists in an upcoming live stream, be sure to email me at crimelinespodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com for more information. In 1996, Perry March called his in-laws and told them that his wife, Janet, had walked out on him after a fight. Within two months of that call, Perry was the prime suspect in Janet's disappearance. And Janet's parents were on a mission to see him prosecuted. But as the years passed, justice remained elusive. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. All right, welcome back to Crimelines. I hope you are not getting sick of me after all of those episodes I released last week. And I also hope you're not expecting three episodes every week. The stars and, frankly, my energy levels just aligned for me to release a bunch of episodes last week. Before we get started with this week's episode, I do want to give you a quick peek Behind the podcast curtain, podcasters don't always love how our episodes turn out. We can sit down with a great script that we worked hard on, and it just doesn't land when we hit record. Or we listen back and realize our script could have been better. This is one of those cases for me from my old podcast Insight. I wasn't happy with how it turned out when we sat down, recorded it, I edited it, and I didn't like it. And it's kind of been hanging over me a little bit, and I knew I was going to eventually have a do-over with it. And now that it's been a year of crime lines, I think it's about time I did. For those of you who have been listening to me since Insight, I hope this doesn't feel like too much of a repeat from when it was released two and a half or three years ago. There is absolutely more information in this episode than in that one. I had access to more court documents this go-round, and this script is actually something like seven or eight pages longer than the Insight one. So you might want to settle in because we're going to be here for a while, and let me jump right into it. Janet Levine grew up in Nashville and graduated from an elite private school in 1981. Her parents had gone to the University of Michigan, which is where they met, and Janet decided to follow in their footsteps. And also like them, she fell in love at the University of Michigan. Perry March was majoring in Asian studies, and he met Janet through a mutual friend. Their first date was meant to be attending Rosh Hashanah services together, but Janet didn't show up. She accidentally slept through. Janet was more free-spirited than Perry, who was grounded and down to earth. She came and went as she pleased, and her sense of humor was quirky, and Perry was really taken by her. Though she flaked on their first date, they rescheduled and were an exclusive couple from the start. Perry and Janet had grown up quite differently. Janet grew up with wealthy parents. Her father, Larry, was a very successful and prominent attorney in Nashville, Tennessee. She attended private schools and really wanted for nothing, and her parents weren't just generous with things. They were doting, loving parents. This is really the type of family any kid would be lucky to have. Perry's family was not wealthy like this. They weren't exactly poor either. Perry's grandfather had immigrated to an industrial area in East Chicago and built himself up from nothing. His kids went on to success with Perry's father, Arthur, becoming a pharmacist. The family surname was Markovich, but Arthur changed it to the much more American-sounding March. He said it was not to hide their heritage, but rather because March was easier. It was easier for people to spell. It was easier for them to pronounce. Arthur is far from the only person in the United States to change their last name to something less ethnic. So, I mean, even if he did this to avoid discrimination, no judgments from me. Perry's mother, Sappora, died when he was just nine years old. According to Arthur, she died of an allergic reaction to a pain medication but the death certificate indicates it was an accidental overdose of a barbiturate. Rumor was that it wasn't accidental, but we can't know that. But it was not an allergic reaction like Arthur said, and it was a little lie that he told, probably to spare his young children some pain. Zipporah's death left Arthur to raise three kids on his own, Though he was a trained pharmacist, he bounced from job to job. Things were financially okay, but it wasn't the wealth like Janet experienced as a child. Arthur and Zipporah had a vacation home in Michigan, which is where the family moved full-time after her death. Perry played sports and became active in martial arts before attending the University of Michigan a school he picked largely due to the in-state tuition discount. By the time Perry went to college, Arthur was retired, and he was mostly living off of his military pension. For Janet, though, tuition costs were just not something she had to worry about. After the two started dating, in no time at all, they were living together— When Perry finished school in 1983, he moved to Chicago for a job, and Janet followed him. Together, they were in Chicago for a couple of years before Perry decided he wanted to go to law school. And Janet's father, Larry, thought it was a great idea. He had a successful career that supported his family very well, and maybe this was a path for Perry, Larry and Carolyn, Janet's parents, would really have loved it if Janet moved back closer to home, back to Nashville. And this was something Janet kept saying she wanted as well. She did not want to stay in Chicago. So when Perry got into Vanderbilt Law School in Nashville, Larry offered to pay for it. The couple moved down there, and somewhere around this time frame, Janet was ready to get married. She and Perry had been together for a while. They lived with each other this whole time. She moved to Chicago for him. He moved to Nashville in part for her. It was time to make it official. But Perry wasn't popping the question. So one day while they were out at the park, Janet got down on one knee and proposed to Perry. She was done waiting. The two got married in June 1987 in the same park where Janet had proposed. Janet's brother was one of Perry's groomsmen. Perry's sister was a bridesmaid. The families seemed to be blending very well. The two honeymooned in France before coming back to Nashville. Perry threw himself into law school, and Janet built an art career focusing on illustrating books. During this time, Janet's parents were supporting the couple, even buying them a house. The Levines were incredibly generous with their wealth, and not just towards Janet and their son Mark. In 1986, before Janet and Perry were even married... Perry's father, Arthur, lost his Michigan house to foreclosure. Larry and Carolyn bought the house back from the bank and let Arthur live there rent-free for a year. Then, when Arthur moved to Nashville to be closer to Perry, the Levines let him live with them while he looked for an apartment and they loaned him the money he needed to start over in a new state. Their reasoning was that Janet loved Perry, and she loved his family, and she wanted them to be happy, and the Levines wanted Janet to be happy. They really valued family, and this was a way they could help this new extended family that Janet was building. Perry graduated law school in 1988, getting a job at a prestigious law firm in Nashville right out of school. He turned down any job offer that would take him out of state. He and Janet had no interest in leaving. Perry and Janet were making enough money themselves to support themselves as a young couple, but they were being subsidized by Janet's parents all along. Even after they weren't fully supporting them financially, Larry and Carolyn always gave them the largest monetary gift allowed by law each year that wouldn't be taxed. And beyond financial help, the Levines took Perry in like a son. He grew up without his mother, his father had never remarried, and Perry treated Carolyn like his surrogate mother. It worked out well, except for the few times Perry and Janet would argue about something and then both go to Carolyn for comfort or advice. That put her in an awkward position, but for the most part, Carolyn was happy to be mom to both of them. Perry and Janet welcomed their first child in the summer of 1990, a son named Samson, And I'm sure I don't have to tell you what type of grandparents the Levines were. They were as thrilled at Sammy's birth as Janet and Perry were. But Perry and Janet were hitting some rocky times in 1991. They were arguing quite a bit, and people from the outside said that Janet seemed hard to please at times, and it could be hard to bring her back once she got angry about something. Perry was seen as the more laid-back one, but we really never know what happens behind closed doors when couples argue. We really don't. We don't know what's smoldering behind the seemingly quiet, calm one. Because avoiding conflict isn't the same as being understanding or patient or long-suffering or whatever other spins we want to put on it. As a confrontation avoider myself, I know this for a fact. And Janet and Perry also had a new baby, which is a huge change for any couple, and that just gives you a whole new list of things to argue about. Then, in the fall of 1991, 30-year-old Perry was let go from his job at the law firm. For all Janet, her parents, and all of their friends knew, this was just office politics. But the whole story is a bit seedier. In July of 1991, a paralegal in the office where Perry worked, named Lee, found a letter on her desk. She opened it and was surprised to see it was a several-pages-long love letter. I hate to call it love here. Let's call it a lust letter. It was unsigned, and it alternated between poetic meanderings and then flat-out erotic statements about sexual acts the letter writer would perform on her. The letter writer also confessed he was a married man, but pointed out that he had never been tempted to cheat on his wife before. So OK, even in the early 1990s, we knew what sexual harassment was. Uninterested in this ever-so generous offer of sex with a married coworker, Lee turned the letter over to her boss. The letter was really beyond what anyone could justify as appropriate, let alone in the workplace. This is a legal firm they had a pretty good understanding of what would happen if they didn't take action and Lee decided to push their liability. So they hired an outside risk management agency to help figure out who sent the letter and to advise them on how to proceed. Within a month, two more letters appeared on Lee's desk. One of the letters told Lee how to get in touch with the letter writer if she was interested in hooking up with this anonymous coworker. There was some cloak and dagger stuff about how she should leave something in a particular book in the law firm's library that would signal him that she wanted to meet. So the firm hooked up some CCTV cameras in the library and watched who went and looked for that book. And only one person in the entire office picked up this obscure book. It was Perry March. Perry was confronted. He was facing being fired or maybe being allowed to resign. But Lee felt that the firm was too slow to act. They were letting Perry take his time, trying to decide how to proceed. She took some vacation days, but when she came back, he was still working there. She still had to see Perry after she knew it was him writing those letters, so she quit before he left. And honestly, why wouldn't she? These letters were disgusting. Knowing the things Perry was thinking about her every time she went to work, I can't imagine her not quitting under those circumstances. Because of this, Lee was looking into her legal options she was able to reach an out-of-court settlement that would keep her from suing the law firm for sexual harassment. And in this out-of-court agreement, Perry said he would pay her $25,000. But like most of us, Perry couldn't have $25K disappear from his bank account without explaining it to Janet. So he entered a four-year payment plan with Lee where half the money would be paid in monthly installments over the course of four years. The last payment would be a balloon payment of $12,500. By early 1996, Perry should have been done paying this off. Though it does not appear Janet knew about the situation at Perry's office, the two did start marriage counseling around this time. Part of Perry's deal with the firm in leaving it is that they would let him officially resign rather than have it go on his record as him being fired if he sought professional help. So by November 1992, Perry was in individual counseling with Dr. Thomas Campbell, who was a psychiatrist, and then Perry went to work at his father-in-law's law firm. In May 1994, Janet and Perry welcomed a second child, a daughter they named after Perry's mother. And they also began construction on Janet's dream home, funded in large part thanks to her parents. The house was 5,300 square feet. It was on a four or five acre lot. And Janet oversaw pretty much every single detail. Some of the contractors found her incredibly difficult to work with. But this is also the same time frame that her friends are noticing that she's becoming more depressed and more withdrawn. Her marriage was falling apart. She had two little kids. Perry was focused on his own career, his own life. Janet only worked two days a week when their nanny came in. She was also working as an illustrator, and anyone who freelances, hello, it's feast or famine. I wouldn't be surprised if Janet was exerting so much control over the house, because it's the one thing she had control over. In July 1995, the house was finally done, and they moved in. Perry was still making those payments to Lee, probably secretly, and the balloon payment was about seven or eight months away, a payment Perry would not make, which meant he was in violation of the agreement, and Lee could then pursue this in court. The entire thing would be public. Meanwhile, Janet and Perry's marital problems Are only getting worse and they're no longer being hid. In the spring of 1996, Perry told his mother in law that he was afraid Janet was going to divorce him and take away custody of the kids. Carolyn hadn't realized that their situation was at that point. Janet's friend, Alora, said Janet confided in her around the same time that she was having a lot of issues with Perry. And although Laura didn't see any signs of physical abuse, she did witness what she characterized as verbal abuse. Not abuse from the supposedly hard-to-please Janet, but from Perry, the guy who was supposedly so calm. He would put Janet down. He was being overly critical of her. He was treating her like she was stupid. And Laura was not the only one who saw this. Sherry Lee was the hairstylist who both Perry and Janet saw, and one day in July 1996, she was cutting Janet's hair when Perry came into the salon unexpectedly. Sherry noticed that Janet suddenly got very nervous. She shrunk back into the chair a bit as Perry approached, and this was the first time she had ever seen Janet act that way around Perry. So obviously, it stood out to her. Perry had stopped seeing his psychiatrist a while before this, but it was this time, July 1996, that he went back to Dr. Campbell, and Janet went with him to a few sessions. These sessions were rough. During one of the last ones where Dr. Campbell saw both of them, Janet angrily asked Perry if he even told Dr. Campbell about the incident at his former job. Perry had only told Dr. Campbell that he had an issue with someone at the firm and he made it seem like it wasn't that big of a deal. But Janet is now clearly furious about it five years down the road. It definitely seemed like a fresh wound. I think this is a good indication that it was this summer of 1996 when Janet finally learned what happened. The couple was also starting to argue loudly in front of the children, which concerned Janet's mom. Carolyn even suggested maybe it was time to separate if they couldn't keep their disputes from upsetting the children so much. And Dr. Campbell agreed with this after an August 5th therapy session. The word Dr. Campbell used to describe it was volatile. He suggested they separate on a trial basis so that they could both have space to calm down and then maybe they could start resolving the issues if that's what they wanted. But they were in no position to continue to live together and to share space. Perry found a house to rent pretty soon after this, but he couldn't move in right away so he started spending most nights in hotels. But to make it easier on the kids, Perry would come back to the house after work, have dinner, put the kids to bed around 7.30, and then he would leave for the night. On Thursday, August 15th, 1996, 33-year-old Janet had two workers from the cabinet company over-installing butcher block countertops. She knew the family of one of the men, so she was chatting with him about that, but she was also supervising, because that's what she did when there were workers in the house. After they installed the countertops, she asked if they could tighten a faucet, and Perry gave them a wrench to do so. Perry was at the house at this point. It was around four in the afternoon when the men arrived, but he spent most of the time playing outside in the yard with the kids. Around five, the workmen left. And these are the last people outside of that house to see Janet. We only have Perry's version of events for what happened next. Perry claimed that he put the kids to bed, as usual, roughly at 7.30, When he went downstairs, he and Janet started talking, and it began calmly enough. But Janet started in about how Perry wasn't really doing very much, how was he going to make up for the time he hadn't been home in the last several days, where she was having to do everything. She got more upset, talking about how he wasn't even trying to help her out, and that maybe he should just go back to the hotel. So Perry told her. He wasn't sure what she was saying here. What did she want? Did she want him to leave and stay at the hotel or stay home and help her? Because she's kind of saying both. Janet told him to just go to the hotel, so he called the Hampton Inn and used his credit card to reserve the room. This only made Janet more angry. She told him that he was having no more vacations on her time and with their joint funds. She grabbed his wallet, and according to Perry, she ripped up his credit card. She must have had whole cans or something. I don't know how you rip up a credit card. Anyway, she took his license and some cash out of his wallet and gave those to him. That was all he was getting. Then suddenly she said, you know what? I have a different idea for tonight. Janet went into Perry's home office, sat at the computer, and started typing. Then she went upstairs and came down a few minutes later with three small bags, one of them being a small suitcase that she would use when she'd go out of town for the weekend. She handed Perry the note that she had typed that said, Janet's 12 day vacation note across the top, and she insisted Perry sign it. Then she said, your turn, see ya, and left around 8.30. She took her bags, her passport, some pot, and a whole bunch of cash. The note that Perry had signed was a basic to-do list, things like laundry and pay the bills and balance the checkbook. I think what's most interesting about this note wasn't necessarily what was on it, It's more what wasn't on it. Their son, Sammy, had a scheduled playdate at the house the very next day with one of his little friends from preschool. That playdate was not on the list. Perry claimed he knew about the playdate because he was the one who arranged it, so that's why Janet didn't write it down but the mother of the little boy said that's a lie. She arranged the playdate with Janet, not Perry. But what Perry is basically saying happened is that Janet left to show him what it was like to have to do everything without a spouse's help. And if this note said Janet's weekend vacation at the top, that would have made sense Who doesn't need a weekend away when we are feeling overwhelmed? But leaving for nearly two weeks? That would mean Janet would miss Sammy's birthday party the following weekend. She had planned the whole thing. She sent out invites. She was expecting family to come into town for it. She wouldn't have missed that party. None of this adds up, but it is what Perry said happened. After Janet left, Perry started making phone calls starting around 9 p.m. He called his brother and sister, who both lived in the Chicago area, and he told them that Janet took off and left him with the kids. Then he called one of Janet's childhood friends and told her much the same thing. Then he called the Hampton Inn, thinking maybe Janet used his reservation, but she hadn't. So then he called another hotel. What if she checked in there? She wasn't there. He called back to the Hampton Inn, back and forth. He couldn't find her. It was around midnight that Perry called Janet's parents. He said he waited to call them until so late because Janet would get annoyed with him when he would involve them in their arguments. But when he couldn't figure out where she was otherwise, he knew he had to call them and see what they knew. Perry told Carolyn that Janet had left after they had an argument, and he wondered if she was either with them or had she called Carolyn and told her where she was going. Carolyn hadn't heard from Janet, but she said she was sure she'd come back when she cooled off. Then she said to have Janet call her when she did get back. What Carolyn didn't tell Perry was that she was supposed to go with Janet to an appointment with a divorce attorney the next day. So she fully expected Janet to call her by the morning. The morning came with no word from Janet. It's now Friday, August 16th, and the family's house cleaner, Deneen, came over. She was working her way through nursing school and had been cleaning for the family for the last year or two, coming over once a week. Usually, Janet would leave her a handwritten list if there was anything specific she wanted done. Perry had called Denine early that morning to ask when she would be coming over. He said that Janet was in California on a business trip. Perry would later say he was using the California story as a cover so people weren't gossiping about their marital issues. Denine told him that she would be there around 8 or 8.30, and when she got there, she was surprised to find that, one, there was no list for her from Janet, and two, much of her usual work was already done. You know how people joke about they clean before the housekeeper gets there, but Denine had been working for the marches since 1994, so she knew her job and she knew what she generally needed to do every week. She found all of the trash baskets had been emptied, and it looked like someone had already cleaned the common living areas where she would usually do most of her work. The only specific instruction she got from Perry was to not clean the children's playroom, so she didn't go in there that day. Somewhere around 10 in the morning, the children's part-time nanny, Ella, came over. She only worked twice a week, and these were the days Janet would usually hole up and draw or paint all day for a client. But the most recent time she had been there, just two days before, Ella was surprised because Janet was upset, she wasn't focused on her work, and instead, she sat in front of the computer all day, which is something she had never done before. Perry told Ella that Janet had left, she had gone out to California. Ella was, like everyone else who would hear this story, surprised that Janet left like that. In the five or six years she had cared for the kids, Ella had watched them when Janet would go out of town or would be away for the weekend, but Janet would always tell her in advance. Usually, Carolyn would jump in as grandma and take the kids, and Ella would go there to help out. Janet always left detailed, handwritten lists about the kids' schedule, about any specific instructions she had for taking care of them. There was always a list. And this time, there was no list, there were no instructions, there was nothing. So this California story, which Perry admits he made up, Didn't make any sense. But also, the other story that Janet left for a spontaneous vacation also didn't make any sense for much the same reasons. Anyway, Ella said that in the house that day, she saw a rolled up multicolor carpet blocking the kitchen entryway when she arrived, and then she never saw the carpet again. That same morning, Likely before Ella got there, Sammy's little friend showed up for his playdate. The mom, Marissa, rang the doorbell, and Sammy answered the door. Then Perry came out of his home office and seemed surprised. He indicated that he did not know about the playdate, but it was fine. The boys could play together because the nanny was going to be there for the day. Marissa also saw the rolled-up rug that Ella saw, but when she saw it, it was in the middle of the entryway, and Sammy was jumping on it. When she came back around two to pick up her son, Perry wasn't home, and the rug was gone. Perry would deny that this rug ever existed, but we have two people, independent of each other, who say they saw it. If it had an innocent explanation, why is Perry claiming that both of these women are wrong about what they saw? The house cleaner, who had been there earlier than both of the women who saw the rug, did not see it. So it feels like, to me, Perry was moving this rug through the house and eventually got rid of it. It just wasn't in the common areas when the housekeeper was over. I don't think, as I've seen insinuated elsewhere, that Janet's body was rolled in the carpet since Perry left it out where his six-year-old son could see it. I think it is more likely there was just evidence on it. Now, Janet obviously missed the appointment with the divorce attorney, and her parents went to the house at some point that day to figure out what to do next. Perry told them he had not expected Janet to stay away more than overnight. They did drive to the airport to look for her car, And they called hospitals, they called hotels, but nothing came up. By Sunday, three days after Janet had left, Carolyn just wasn't buying it anymore. Unless Janet had a complete breakdown, she wouldn't have stayed out of contact with everybody, including her parents like that. She would have at least called to see how the kids were doing. The list Janet left also didn't make sense to Carolyn. That Janet left a list, that did make sense. She was a list maker. She made them for everything. But because she was a list maker, that meant Carolyn knew what Janet's lists tended to look like because she got them all the time whenever she took the kids overnight. And this note didn't match. For one, Carolyn had never seen Janet type a list. Ever. Every single other list she ever had was handwritten. Weird that she suddenly decided to type this one. Janet also dated her lists, and she always put the date at the top of the page. This one had the date at the bottom. Now, this is a little thing. You might think that's not that big of a deal. But when people do something the same exact way— for five, 10 years, when they all of the sudden seem to change it, you have to wonder what's going on. So on Sunday, Janet's parents suggested calling the police. Perry denies this, but the Levines said that Perry and his brother told them they should wait. At least give Janet the 12 days she said she was going to be gone. After all, when she came back from vacation after 12 days, she was going to be horribly embarrassed that they contacted the police and her mom-on-strike meltdown was now public record. The Levines were persuaded by this and decided to wait. Meanwhile, Perry's father, Arthur, came back to Nashville. He had retired to a resort town in Mexico in 1993 He knew his money would go a lot farther there. Perry had called him in Mexico when Janet left. He said he needed help with the kids, so Arthur got in his car and he took the few days it takes to drive to Nashville, arriving on or around Tuesday, August 20th. Sammy's birthday party came around on Saturday, August 24th, and Janet was still gone. People were confused about where Janet was since she wouldn't have missed her son's birthday party. So the new cover story was that while on this trip to California, she had an ear infection and the doctor wouldn't let her fly. Again, Perry and the Levines are telling the story to help Janet save face. Now, Janet's brother, Mark, flew to Nashville to be with the family. One day, they were all at Janet's parents' house, and Mark asked Perry if he could see Janet's 12-day vacation note. Perry said he could, and that it was saved on the family computer. So they each got in their own cars to drive over to the March's house to look at this note. Except Perry hopped in his car and sped off. Now, Mark tried to keep up with him, but they were eventually separated when Perry ran a red light. So obviously, Perry got to the house first. When Mark got there, the front door was locked. He rang the doorbell repeatedly before Perry would open the door and let him in. Mark followed Perry to the office where the computer was already on, and Mark looked over the document. He did notice that it was first saved at 8.15 on August 15th in line with Perry's story about Janet writing it. But then he noticed another document, and he opened that, and it was a six-page list of incidents of mistreatment by Perry that Janet had documented. Mark asked if he could get a copy of that document, and Perry said, sure, he could print it. But then Mark didn't know how to get it to print on the computer. Perry wasn't helping, and Mark ended up just not getting it. At this point, Janet still hadn't been reported missing. It wasn't until she missed Sammy's actual birthday that her parents and Perry decided, together, to report her missing to the police on August 29th. As part of the report, Perry told them the make, model, and license plate number of her car. It was only a week after the investigation started which means three weeks since Janet was last seen, that the car was found. It was found backed into a parking spot in an apartment complex less than five miles from her home. The car was covered in dust and pollen. There were webs in the wheel wells. I mean, this car had not been moved in a while. The car was locked, and found inside were a bunch of Janet's belongings. Her purse was in the pocket of the left front door, upside down. Inside were her credit cards, her ID, some cash, and her passport. There was a small black suitcase with some clothing in it, but it was not 12 days' worth of clothes. There was a bikini, three dresses, and two pairs of socks. This was a weekend away at best. Oddly, it was missing a bra. Most women I know who are going away for any length of time, let alone two weeks, are going to pack at least one bra in addition to the one they were wearing. But being that this was summer and it was hot, you'd expect her to have packed a couple. Investigators also found a canvas bag of toiletries in the car, but this was also oddly packed. It had makeup in it, but it didn't have deodorant, or a toothbrush, or a hairbrush. Also in the car was a pair of sandals. They were on the floor on the driver's side, but not kicked off. They were lined up like someone put them there. But the thing that made those who knew Janet know that she didn't park this car was that it was backed into the space. If you are someone who never backs into spaces, that's just who you are as a person. You don't suddenly gain mirroring spatial relations to be able to do it just one day. Janet didn't back into parking spots. That's all there is to it. But if someone was dumping the car and didn't want it found too quickly, backing it into the space was a good idea because Tennessee only has license plates on the back. They do not have front plates. So this would have made it a lot less likely someone would have seen the car, saw the plate, and connected it to Janet's disappearance. But Janet's car did lack any obvious signs something went wrong. There was no blood or anything like that. It didn't look like the car had been tossed. And there was no sign of Janet at the apartment complex or anywhere else. There was no activity on her bank accounts after she left the house. And the only charges on the couple's joint credit cards were made by Perry. Investigators were open to the possibility that Janet left her house willingly and then something happened outside of her house. But it would be disingenuous of me to pretend like they weren't already narrowing in on Perry. His story wasn't adding up. Plus... He was the estranged husband. A few days after finding Janet's car, on September 10th, Perry's Jeep was searched and processed with his consent. While it didn't look like it had been recently scrubbed clean, the detective did say there was a vague odor of cleaning products inside the car. This, to me, is just way too subjective to consider it evidence. In processing the Jeep, they found carpet fibers of various colors, which of course makes me think of the rug that had been seen at the house. The fibers were collected, but they never were matched to anything. And spoiler, the rug that two people saw and Perry swears never existed, that was never found. A long, dark hair was collected from the cargo area, and mitochondrial DNA was taken from it. So here's a lesson on your hair and your DNA. Your hair shaft does not have nuclear DNA, nuclear meaning contained in the nucleus. That means there are two types of DNA that you cannot get from a shedded hair or a cut hair. That's Y-DNA, which is passed father to son, and autosomal DNA, which is what we're usually testing when we talk about making DNA matches. You need the hair follicle for this. But mitochondrial DNA, which we get from our mothers, is found in the hair shaft, and that can be tested for. By comparing the hair in the car to a hair from Janet's hairbrush at home, they were able to match the mitochondrial DNA. What this means is that the hair was either Janet's or it was someone she was related to on her mother's side who is also related to Janet through their mother's side. But we're just going to stipulate that this was Janet's hair. Even Perry didn't deny that because he is her husband and this is his car. That hair could have gotten there when she unloaded a kid's bicycle or grabbed some groceries. Her hair being in her husband's car is not compelling evidence of literally anything. Perry's car had brand new tires on it, so the police tracked down this purchase. He had replaced them on August 21st, six days after Janet went missing, and shortly after his father arrived in Nashville. He said replacing the tires was on the list that Janet had left for him and he was simply working through it while she was gone. He said the tires were bald and they simply needed to be replaced. But that's not what the owner of the tire store Perry went to said happened. He said that Perry came in asking for new tires, but the ones he had on his Jeep Cherokee were in great shape. It was policy at this company to inform the customer about the condition of the tires, even if it meant the tires were fine and did not need to be replaced. So he told this to Perry, and Perry insisted he wanted them replaced anyway. He didn't like them, he wanted a different brand, something like that. When they replaced the tires, Perry said he did not want to keep the old ones so why change out these tires? Obviously, police think that they must have some evidence that Perry wants to hide, possibly because Perry was afraid he left Tire prints somewhere he didn't want to be found. And that's why not only did he want them replaced, he wanted them replaced with a different brand, which you would assume would have a different tread pattern. Perry's car was not the only thing they searched. The police also conducted a search of the house and the property on September 10th. They searched the computer while Perry was present in the office with them, but they did not do a full forensic search of it or take it with them. Perry was being pretty cooperative, so the police went ahead and asked him if he would take a polygraph, but he talked to an attorney about it and then declined, He said he was taking a medication that would alter the result. But he did agree to give a complete statement about what happened that night, which is what we already went through about the fight, the list, and Janet leaving. Perry started feeling the pressure of the investigation after making this statement, and his attorney told the police that he was revoking his consent to search. Anything more they wanted or needed, they were going to need to get a warrant. After this, Perry took the kids to Chicago for Rosh Hashanah and returned to Nashville on September 15th. On the 16th, Perry learned through his attorney the Nashville police had gotten a search warrant and they intended to search his house and his computer the next day. On September 17th, when the police got to the property, they found that someone had ripped out the hard drive of the computer because that's not at all suspicious. Perry denied having done it. He said that someone had come to the house while he was in Chicago and had taken the hard drive. He suspected it was either Janet's father, Larry, who did it or his own father, Arthur, who was in Nashville that weekend. Larry said he didn't take it. There was little motive for him to do so. Yes, he wanted to find his daughter, but the police had more tools to figure out what was on the computer than he did. If he took it, he would have turned it over to the police. And as for Perry's father, Arthur, taking it, he said in an interview he didn't even know what the F a hard drive was. Aside from the computer search that couldn't happen, the police conducted the rest of the search. They had dozens of recruits, a helicopter, a cadaver dog. They were searching the March property, but also around the banks of two nearby lakes. Immediately after the search, as in the very next day, Perry called a friend to help him pack up because he was moving to Chicago. The friend said Perry was agitated about being a suspect, and he just kept saying things like, F the police and F the Levines, and it was really making his friend uncomfortable. The friend offered ways that he could help Perry search for Janet, but Perry turned him down. He decided he was going to take the kids to Chicago. He was going to get away from the pressure of everything in Nashville. Janet's parents did not learn that Perry moved until after he did it, so they immediately filed for some type of grandparents' rights visitation based on it being in the children's best interest. They had just lost their mother, and Larry and Carolyn had been a near-daily presence in their lives, so taking them away from their family, it just wasn't good for their well-being. And the Levines were granted a visit in December 1996, though the actual battle over getting regular visitation rights would continue. In early 1997, Perry was living in Chicago and he had taken most of the belongings from the family home, except for some of Janet's personal effects. The house was being sold, so Carolyn was going through everything that had been shoved into the garage. In a large envelope with Janet's name written on it, Carolyn found two letters. She read them, horrified, and then she called the police. These were the originals of the second and third letters Perry had written to the paralegal. A smaller envelope inside the bigger one contained a condom wrapper. No one knows who sent these to Janet or how she got them. If Perry knew she had them or knew where they were, I assume he would have taken them with him. Perry had not paid the balloon payment, but this couldn't have been Lee sending them to Janet in retaliation. She didn't have the originals, she had copies. Did Perry have the originals in his possession and Janet stumbled on them one day? Were these on the computer and Janet found them and printed them off herself? Whatever happened, all we know is that she learned about them and she was keeping them to the side, very likely for use in the divorce. In a letter that was dated a few days before Janet disappeared and postmarked the day after she disappeared, Perry wrote to Lee telling her that he intended to make the last payment in October. And then in October, Perry attempted to get control of Janet's assets. Of course, her parents started blocking him, and now we have the start of a very long civil lawsuit battle. Now, here's the thing with Carolyn bringing these letters to the police. They actually already knew about the incident. In their investigation, they had uncovered it, but this was proof that Janet knew about it and was holding on to these letters as evidence for her divorce case. Then in February 1997, a flight attendant named Peter called the police. He lived in the apartment complex where Janet's car was found. Back on August 16th at one in the morning, he pulled into the apartment complex parking lot, having just come back from work. He saw a man walking a bicycle across the well-lit parking lot. And when Peter got out of his car, and started taking stuff from the back seat, the man froze. So Peter turned and he was looking at him and the guy had a deer in the headlights look when he saw Peter standing there. They were only about 10 to 12 feet apart, so Peter got a good look at him and then the man left with his bicycle. Peter hadn't reported this to the police earlier because he was often out of town on international flights and he didn't know That his apartment complex had been involved in this case at all. It wasn't until he happened to see Perry's photograph in the newspaper in February that he recognized him as the guy with the bicycle. So he checked his schedule and realized that it was the night Janet went missing that he had this weird encounter. The idea here is that Perry drove Janet's car to the complex dumped it, and then headed home on his bicycle. Being four to five miles from their house, this wouldn't have been that hard. Janet's passenger seat had been pushed all the way back, which would have fit Perry's mountain bike. There were tips like this that just kept coming in, but really the first few years after Janet's disappearance were marked more by civil lawsuits flying in both directions than by the criminal investigation. Not just the custody and visitation issues, not just the assets, there were a number of financial lawsuits. The Levines eventually sued Perry's brother and sister because Perry gave them items that they considered Janet's property. And these were valuable items worth thousands of dollars. You'd think at some point, one or both of them would run out of money fighting all of these battles. But Perry and his brother were both attorneys. And Larry was an attorney. Not only that, but he could self-fund any legal battle he needed to. So they entered literally years of civil lawsuits. In March of 1999, a lawyer assigned as guardian ad litem in the visitation battle met with the children and Perry in his home in Chicago. Just walking in the door she was already concerned because there were absolutely no photographs of Janet in the home. The kids had nothing visual to remember her by, and that just wasn't really the best choice for children missing their mother. When she asked Perry about his objections to the Levines having visits, he immediately jumped to saying that they were going to let the police interview Sammy, They were going to let the media talk to him, but Sammy had been asleep when Janet left. He didn't know anything, and Perry wanted to protect him from getting involved in the investigation, where he was afraid the Levines were going to traumatize him by making him talk to the media and talk to the police. But in the end, the Guardian ad litem wrote a report recommending grandparent visitation be granted in the best interest of the children. And when Perry found out, he was angry and he told her that he could disappear to Singapore and no one would see him or the kids again. This comment wasn't taken too seriously until two months later. Everyone showed up at court for another hearing about the visitation plans. Everyone except Perry. His brother, Ron March, who was representing him, announced that Perry had moved with the children, to Mexico to live near Perry's father, Arthur. No one except Ron was told ahead of time that Perry had left the country. The Levines, the guardian ad litem, even the judge, were taken by surprise. And shortly after moving down there, Perry met a new woman. When Janet was declared dead in 2000, he remarried. While Perry had every right to move To Mexico with his children, the Levines still had visitation rights through the courts. And they also had the money to travel down to Mexico to enforce their visitation. What followed had to have been pretty hard on these two little kids. The first time the Levines went to Mexico to enforce their visitation schedule, Perry managed to block their access entirely. When they went a month later to try again, Perry just so happened to be picked up on a visa violation charge at the same time. So the Levines went to the kids' school, took them out, and had them on a plane to Nashville in short order, all with Arthur literally in pursuit behind them, trying to stop it. Perry sorted out his visa issue, and then he filed to get his kids back. Meanwhile, the Levines were trying to get custody. They had something like 39 days of visit time before they had to send them back, so they were hoping in this 39-day window they could get custody. This gets dragged out, but in the end, Perry won, and the kids were returned to him in Mexico, but the rest of the civil suits continued. Perry believed that his in-laws were trying to bankrupt him and his family, but he was also filing suits, so he wasn't exactly a victim here. I could make a crack about this being what happens when two lawyers get into a dispute, and it might even be funny if Janet wasn't missing and presumed murdered, and if there weren't two little kids stuck right in the middle. So now we're in the early 2000s. Perry, his new wife, her three kids, his two kids, and a new baby they had together, were living the Brady Bunch life in Mexico. Perry was first working vaguely in finance, but there were some accusations of fraud against him by some of his clients, and he and his new wife eventually opened a cafe. Perry would tell anyone who asked that Janet had been a wonderful mother until she decided to leave. He believed there must have been drugs involved or possibly an affair. When the kids would ask about their mom, Perry said he would just tell them he didn't know where she was. But the Levines accused him of telling the kids that Janet abandoned them, which is something they don't believe she ever would have done. The truth is, Janet March's case had grown cold at this point. They had a suspect, but not nearly enough evidence. They had all these little pieces, but even for a circumstantial case, this one was weak. But then some cold case detectives decided to look into it again. They ended up getting a tip in 2001 from Mexico from someone Perry had done business with. The man said Perry threatened to do away with him the same way he got rid of his wife. But this was like pretty much every other piece of evidence in this case so far. It was interesting, but it could be easily disputed in court. Someone who didn't like Perry would have a motive to get back at him with an accusation like this. But the detectives just kept building their case. At one point during their reinvestigation, Perry mailed the Nashville DA a photograph he clipped from a magazine. It was taken in Athens during the 2004 Olympic Games. He said the woman was clearly Janet, enjoying her new life. Literally no one else thought that picture looked like Janet. No one, just Perry. In December of 2004, the cold case detectives had built as much of a case against Perry as they could without Janet's body. The DA convened a grand jury to see if there was enough here, to go to trial. The grand jury operated in secret without Perry even knowing it was happening. Nearly 60 witnesses were called, and in the end, they opted to indict Perry March on three charges, second-degree murder, tampering with evidence, and abuse of a corpse. Second-degree murder is an intentional killing without premeditation, punishable in Tennessee, by 15 to 60 years in prison. The authorities did not want to give Perry the chance to go underground, so they kept the indictment secret until they worked with the Mexican government on an extradition plan. It took several months. But really, Mexico did not want to keep a high-profile murder suspect, so they found cause to deport him. One morning in August 2005, Perry headed to the cafe he owned with his new wife and immigration officials showed up. They told him his visa was revoked and he was being deported. He was picked up at 8 a.m. and by 9 a.m. he was on a plane to L.A. This is quite different from the process in many countries where the person is first detained, then given access to legal counsel and possibly given options to remain in the country. Mexico skipped all of that. This was immediate. Perry did not have any time to stop it from happening. When he landed in LA, he was arrested and flown back to Nashville. On the way from LA to Nashville, Perry made conversation with the detective accompanying him, Pat Pastiglione. Knowing Perry was an attorney who certainly knew his rights, Pastiglione told him, flat out, that he had no intention of asking him any questions on the trip, and Perry was under no obligation to talk. But Perry kept talking, and Pastiglione led him. Perry was not a criminal attorney, so he didn't know a lot about the specific degrees of murder and sentencing, so he was asking questions like, what degree murder would it be for an accidental homicide? He asked about a plea deal for seven years. He asked if they found Janet's body. He asked what prison was like. He wanted to know the difference between minimum versus maximum security. I'm sure as much as a detective would want the suspect to keep talking, by the time the plane landed in Nashville, he had to have been sick of Perry. He was worse than a four-year-old with the incessant questions. What Perry didn't do on this plane ride, though, was make a direct admission of guilt. Back in Nashville, Perry was arraigned and given a $3 million bond due to being a flight risk. He couldn't pay it, so he was held pending trial, and the Levines went to court to get full custody of the kids, which they were eventually granted. I saw an interview where someone said Perry's entire job at this point, while waiting for his trial, was to sit in jail and keep his mouth shut. But that is not what happened. This case is about to get a little twisty. While in jail, Perry immediately made friends with the guy in the cell next to him, Nate Ferris. Nate had a long criminal history, including charges for murder, robbery, assault, so on. Perry struck up a conversation with Nate, asking him what prison was like. That started just this casual friendship where they would pass the time talking. Eventually, Perry said he wouldn't even be locked up if it wasn't for his in-laws, and that their testimony was the biggest part of the case against him. Over the course of a month, Perry kept bringing up that he'd be better off if the Levines were killed. Eventually, Perry started saying things like he would pay Nate's bond if he would help him find someone to kill the Levines or if he would do it himself while he was out on bond. Nate said he never intended on helping and he just kept kind of going along with it, but eventually he worried about being implicated if Perry did find a hitman. Nate wasn't the only person Perry talked to. So Perry and Nate were in adjoining cells, but Perry was also talking to the guy in the cell on the other side of him. Nate first told his mother what was going on and said he was worried about it, and she actually called the Levines. Larry said she sounded nervous at first. She didn't want to say who she was. She didn't want to say who her son was. She was worried the Levines were in danger and just wanted to warn them, but she didn't trust the police and didn't want to get wrapped up in anything. But Larry called the police, and then Nate ended up talking to his attorney. They were talking to the DA, and on October 4th, 2005, Nate sat down with the DA and said everything he knew. But this is jailhouse snitch information. They were not about to take Nate's word for it. They asked if he would wear a wire, and he agreed. He was just going to keep going along with whatever Perry said in jail. Just keep him talking. And that's what Perry was good at. So Perry said a lot. He started talking about if Nate would kill the Levines for him, he should lay low for a few weeks. Then he could go to Mexico, where Perry's father, Arthur, would protect him. This way, it wouldn't look suspicious that Nate left the country right after the Levines were murdered. But he'd also get out of the country and not have to worry about the current charges against him, which did include a murder charge. But talking about wanting to kill someone and ordering a hit are not the same thing, legally speaking. So the police had to give Perry the chance to go through with it. They had Nate tell Perry that Nate's bond was lowered and his girlfriend was going to pay it. This meant Nate would be free to act as a hitman. Perry gave him Arthur's phone number, his email address, he gave him the Levine's address, and then on that same paper, he wrote a list of code words Nate should use when he was talking to Arthur. Nate was meant to watch the Levines because the kids were living with them at this point. Perry wanted him to find a time in their routine when they were together but without the kids, so that the kids didn't witness anything or accidentally get hurt. After Nate figured out the best time in the Levine's daily schedule to conduct this hit, he was to call Arthur saying that he was Bobby Givings and that he was ready to buy the BMW. If Nate heard back from Arthur that he was, quote, not ready to sell, then Perry was not ready for him to go through with it. These conversations were recorded, and on October 8th, Nate was, quote-unquote, bonded out. Of course, they weren't really letting this guy out. He was just transferred to another jail. But Perry thought he had been bailed out. Nate then called Arthur at the direction of the police five times over the next few weeks. In the first call on October 12th, Nate asked Arthur if he knew about the agreement he had made with Perry. Arthur said he didn't, but Perry had told him someone would call and that Arthur was to listen to him. Then within a couple minutes, probably 10, 15 minutes of this conversation, they're talking about what gun to use. Arthur's talking about how to avoid leaving fingerprints. This seems to me to be a little more than Perry had wanted his father involved. Arthur was just supposed to be a communication liaison, not a co-conspirator in the actual planning. But after a few calls, Arthur had really gotten himself in deep with this, though he did stop short of having Nate give him any specifics. On October 27th, Nate called Arthur for the last time and said he was at the airport in Houston. He had done the job, aka killed the Levines, and he was on his way to Guadalajara, landing at 2 30. Arthur actually went to the airport to pick him up. Of course, Nate was still in jail in Tennessee. So instead, Arthur was greeted by an FBI agent and two Mexican immigration officials. They asked Arthur why he was at the airport, and he said he was picking up a friend of a friend named Bobby Givings. The FBI agent pushed him on this, asking how he knew Bobby, and Arthur said he didn't. This was just a friend in the U.S. who asked him if he would pick up Bobby Givings and let him stay with him. But Arthur just could not remember the name of the friend who asked him to take Bobby in. Arthur refused to give any more information. So they just told him that Bobby was being detained by immigration, and then the agents left the airport. The next day in the U.S., Perry and Arthur were both indicted for solicitation of murder. Perry, of course, was easy to find an arrest since he was already in jail but Arthur said he was being set up and he was not going to return to the U.S. He filed for an amparo, which is basically a legal protection of his rights that prohibited Mexico from deporting him. This seemed like it was working for a little bit until President Vicente Fox revoked Arthur's visa in early January 2006. Like with Perry, Mexico had no interest in harboring high-profile Americans wanted for serious crimes. Having promised he would not leave Mexico without a fight, Arthur pulled a small knife when immigration officials showed up to deport him. No one was hurt by the knife, but Arthur was, according to his attorney, beaten up by the agents. Arthur was 77 or 78 years old at this point. He had several health issues. So taking on six immigration agents was not a good idea. Arthur was immediately taken to the airport, put on a plane, and in the U.S. within hours of his deportation. In the U.S., he was approached with various deals. Honestly, the case for solicitation of murder against him may not have gone that well. While the tapes definitely implicated Arthur, there was a lot more of Nate talking to Arthur than there was of Arthur agreeing or contributing to the plan. Nate was acting for the state when he called Arthur and taped those conversations, and Arthur's attorneys were already looking at this as a case of entrapment. But the police thought Arthur knew what happened to Janet, so they were going to use this leverage for all it was worth, and they were right. Arthur did know what happened to Janet, and he had been covering for Perry for nearly a decade. Initially, Arthur was reluctant to talk, but he changed his mind, possibly at the encouragement of Perry's siblings who were worried about him. Arthur was brash and bold, but he was also old and frail. He told his attorney he would tell the police everything in exchange for a one to two year sentence. This would give him some hope of not dying in prison. He was facing seven to 10 years otherwise. It seems odd to know Arthur was willing to be involved in a murder for hire plot and the cover up of Janet's death in an attempt to protect Perry. But in the end, he was rolling over on Perry to save his own skin. There is a different way to look at this. Perry was refusing all plea deals that would have given him a life outside of prison one day. If Arthur got the truth out there and Perry knew he was going to lose at trial, he might be willing to take a plea deal, one of the ones he stubbornly refused to take before. But that also might be giving Arthur too much credit in that regard. He could have just realized that all Perry had to do was keep his mouth shut and not involve him in this. He'd still be living his best life in Mexico. Perry was the reason Arthur was sitting in jail. So for whatever reason, Arthur spilled. He said that on August 15th or 16th, 1996, Perry called him and told him to come up to Nashville. Janet had walked out on him. He needed the help and Arthur agreed to come up, arriving around August 20th. He could tell Perry was in a state when he arrived. Arthur finally just asked straight out, what did you do? And Perry confessed. He said he and Janet had a fight, and he hit Janet with a wrench that one of the contractors had left out, but only after she had come at him with a knife. But the blow to the head didn't kill her, It just stunned her, causing her to fall down the stairs. It was the fall that killed her. So in short, according to Perry, this was self-defense followed by an accident. I mean, I don't buy it, but this is what he's saying. Perry panicked and decided to hide her body instead of calling for help. He took her to a property of a client of his, which was nearby, but there was a problem. They were starting construction on the site very soon and would probably find Janet. Arthur told Perry that he shouldn't have left her so close and certainly not on a property he had a connection to. They had to move her. Perry drove Arthur to the edge of the property and dropped him off. Not wanting his car to be seen parked in the area, Perry drove around while Arthur using Perry's directions, went to find where he had left Janet. Arthur found the large black leaf bag containing Janet's body right where Perry said it would be. There had been a weak attempt at burying it, but it was really just a layer of dirt over the bag. It was so little that Arthur was able to brush it away with his hand. He looked in the bag quickly, he saw there were bones, and then he closed it up. Arthur then dragged the bag down a hill to the road and waited for Perry to circle back. They then, together, put it in the trunk and drove off. They stayed on the highway for about an hour heading north before pulling over near Bowling Green, Kentucky. They checked into a motel using cash, where Perry said he was tired. So while sleepy Perry got his beauty rest his father took his keys and drove across Bowling Green in the hopes of finding somewhere to leave Janet's remains. His initial plan was to leave her in a deep creek, but he couldn't find one. Eventually, he found a brush pile along the side of the road in a pretty rural area. He shoved Janet's clothes into one hole he cleared out. He put her remains in another, and then he put the black bag in yet another. Kind of covered it up a bit, and he hoped the brush pile would eventually be burned, making it pretty much impossible that Janet would ever be found. Arthur drove back to the motel, and he and Perry then headed back to Nashville. He never told Perry where he left Janet's body, and Perry was under the assumption he had left her in water like they originally planned. Arthur also admitted... He did take that hard drive at Perry's request, and he destroyed it. But this wasn't all Arthur had to say. He went on to accuse Carolyn Levine of being the queen of the Jewish mafia and of keeping records on Jewish people around the world and controlling the money. And basically the whole case against him and Perry was because the Levines controlled the judicial system because the Jewish mafia funded campaigns for judges, and Carolyn, as the queen of the mafia, handed out the money. I mean, you'd think if she could do all this, she would have gotten them arrested sooner than nine years after Janet went missing, and she would have bribed someone to get custody of the kids. And honestly, for someone who took help from the Levines when he needed it, He sure had a different view of them right now. Anyway, Arthur was taken to Bowling Green, but he couldn't find the place he left Janet's body, and as of the time of this recording in April 2020, Janet March remains missing. Arthur had no physical evidence to back up what he said, and so it would be his word against Perry's defense team. Because no, this new twist did not persuade Perry to plead out. In June of 2006, about 10 years after Janet disappeared, Harry's trial began. One of the things that interested me most about this case years ago is that it's a no-body homicide trial. These are pretty uncommon, and you can understand why. We talked about it in the Jennifer Dulos episode. You have to first prove that someone is dead and then prove that the defendant is responsible. And the risk of going to trial without really solid evidence is a huge one, because the U.S. has protection from double jeopardy. If Perry was acquitted and evidence was found later, he couldn't be retried. For those who did not listen to the Jennifer Dulos episode, I covered a really interesting statistic. Tad DiBiase, who's an attorney who runs the NobodyCases.com website, has found that 86% of no-body murder trials end in a conviction compared to the 70% conviction rate for all murder cases. So no-body murder cases that make it to trial are more likely to end in a conviction because only the strongest cases ever go to trial when there is no body. But I do question how strong the case against Perry was prior to Arthur talking. It was strong for the solicitation of murder charge, obviously, but of killing Janet? The case was circumstantial. There was no smoking gun. There wasn't even a lukewarm barrel. That is, until Arthur came along. At trial, the state's case was pretty much what we covered, but throw in another jailhouse informant. Arthur March was really sick at this point, so they used his taped deposition rather than having him testify in person. The defense focused on the lack of Janet's body and how that means it was reasonable to assume she had just walked away. They also came hard at the prosecution witnesses trying to undermine their credibility and the reliability of their decade-old memories. But the surprising evidence they had here was a tape of Sammy, made a few years after Janet went missing. In it, he said his mother came into his room to say goodbye, and he saw her drive away. But this tape didn't land well. It was read as a poor attempt at coaching this little boy. For starters, you couldn't even see the driveway from his bedroom window, so how did he see her drive away? And in the days immediately after Janet went missing, Sammy had told his teacher he was sad because his mother went away and he didn't even get to say goodbye. He also told the Guardian ad litem in Chicago that he heard his parents argue, but then he fell asleep. When he woke up, Janet was gone. And Perry himself insisted for years, Sammy was asleep. He didn't see anything. He didn't hear anything. Then suddenly he has his son on tape saying the complete opposite. The jury didn't buy it. They didn't buy anything else from Perry. They believed Arthur. And they found Perry guilty of second-degree murder. It was 10 years plus two days after Janet's disappearance. He was sentenced to 56 years total, which included the sentence for the conspiracy plot against his in-laws. He has since exhausted all of his appeals. The day Perry was convicted, Arthur March was sentenced. The prosecutor recommended the agreed on plea deal sentence of 18 months in prison, three years supervised release. But the judge was not bound by this, and he sentenced Arthur to five years. At this point, Arthur's failing health made 18 months and five years just about the same in the end since Arthur died less than four months later. Perry March is now 58 years old. He maintains his innocence. As of a 2014 interview, he said he occasionally heard from his daughter, but not his son. He didn't mention in this interview anything about the wife in Mexico or his child down there. He said he works in the prison law library helping other inmates with their legal issues. Perry made the news twice since his conviction. In 2015, after his final appeal was denied and the Supreme Court decided not to hear his case, another inmate said Perry was planning an escape. He was moved to another prison, though it's not clear if any evidence of an escape plot was uncovered or if they just moved him out of an abundance of caution. Then, Perry sued the Tennessee Department of Corrections and their food vendor in 2017, complaining that the kosher prison food was substandard and violated his rights. Part of me wants to say, who cares? It's not part of his religion to kill his wife, yet he did it anyway. But I also believe inmates have constitutional rights, and the government does have a responsibility to provide proper nutrition and support Perry's free exercise of religion. In 2018, some of his arguments in the case were dismissed, but the ones that pertained specifically to his religious practice were allowed to proceed, but I haven't found any follow-up on this on the online court records I have access to from my house, and the library is closed right now, so I can't go up there to look in Westlaw like I usually would. Anyway, Perry is eligible for parole in 2038 when he will be 77 years old. Parole can be next to impossible to get when you do not show remorse. And showing remorse is impossible while also maintaining your innocence. Should Perry live this long? It'll be interesting to see if he changes his story for the parole board. I just cannot imagine what would have happened in this case had Perry not tried to hire someone to kill the Levines. That exposed Arthur to scrutiny, which allowed the truth to come out. Did the state have a strong enough case to get a conviction without Arthur's testimony? I don't think they did, and I think that's why they kept offering Perry plea deals. Perry could be free today had he just sat in jail and waited quietly for his trial. In other episodes, I keep bringing up this idea of how much luck is involved in catching a murderer versus them getting away with it. But in this case, Perry didn't need luck. That was already in his favor. He needed common sense. And thankfully, for the sake of justice, for the beautiful... Talented and loving Janet Levine March. Perry did not have nearly enough of it. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at Charlie CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie.